The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, two of the biggest trials in Court TV history are happening simultaneously, and we're going to cover them both gavel to gavel. First, Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, will join me as we talk about the opening days of the murder trial of the Kenosha shooter, Kyle Rittenhouse. Then we'll talk about the jury selection process that has taken a long time in the Ahmad Arbery murder trial. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for listening to the Court TV Podcast, downloading, sharing with a friend, perhaps. Uh, this week at, at Court TV, wow, what a week it is. Um, two enormous trials that we are covering and juggling, but uh, providing gavel to gavel coverage of both in, in, in the way only Court TV can. And um, the first case I want to talk about is one in Wisconsin, the second is one in Georgia. Um, there are some similarities between the two, but there are some stark differences as well. But to do all this, I've got to bring in my friend, my colleague, Court TV anchor Ted Rollins, uh, who joins us, who's actually on the ground in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, accused of shooting three people during the Kenosha riots, killing two of them. He is claiming self-defense. Ted, uh, great to have you aboard. Are, are, are you warm enough? Well, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm somewhat used to the way, but oh, it is cold. All right. So the last time I recall ever being in a position where there were two big trials happening at once was the doctor who killed Michael Jackson and the Casey Anthony trial were originally scheduled to begin on the same day. The same day. And the night before the first day of the trial, Osama bin Laden was captured and killed. So there were a lot of things happening. It turns out that the um, Conrad Murray, the doctor who killed Michael Jackson, that trial got delayed. So I've never really been in a position like we are right now at Court TV. Ted, your thoughts about two big, big trials happening at once and and just kind of being able to to really understand them but also you know i think there's a connection in 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 some way between these two cases yeah i agree these the rittenhouse case and the mcmichaels roddy bryant case they come around once you know a year maybe once every you know year and a half now we have two starting basically in the same week and they are similar in in, in my opinion many ways they both occurred during a time uh, when our country was divided, um, it, they both are um, relying on video evidence where a jury's going to see, and we've already seen it play out in day one of the Rittenhouse trial, they're, they're watching videos of what actually happened. Uh, it's incredible. And, and we're seeing more and more of this in trials that we cover because there's so much video out there. Um, and it, it is really playing out in, in both of these cases. It will jurors are going to have to decipher what they see on the video and, and and it's going to be a big part of both trials yeah and that's amazing right you have a video of what happened yet you have people looking at that video and seeing different things so let's start with, with the case in wisconsin in, in kenosha kyle rittenhouse this is a, a case 
Ted, I've described many times on the air as the most divisive case in my history of covering trials, because people look at the videos that we're talking about and they see completely different things. And I, I just feel like they are dug in and there's nothing that could ever change their minds. And people get very nasty when they start talking about this case online. They get very nasty, very personal. And I think it's because people are viewing this case through um, their political lenses. Absolutely. And being in the courtroom during day one, you know, you look at jurors and, and you try to you, you you think, all right, I think I know what this, where this person's coming from. Most of the time you're wrong, but sometimes it's pretty easy to see where someone's coming from. And there are 20 jurors in this case, and you've said this before, you think this could be a split decision. This could be um, a, a situation where there is no verdict because it'll be a hung jury. And I think you might be right. I mean, there are classic like kevin goff wants in the arbory trial we'll talk about that later um there are the classic joe six-pack and bubba's on this panel there are the um they're all crammed into the jury box i, I counted seven of them wearing masks and um the others you get the feeling that they would they'd be the last thing they would ever do and, and i don't want to say that that's political that you know but it, it had let's be honest um, it is, Ted. It is. It absolutely is. To my mind and my eye in that courtroom, um, I can see the divide. It's almost like you could just separate them out and put one half on the one side and one on the other. And it's it's a microcosm of our society today. And I think you're spot on. You've said it many times. This is one of those cases where if you had to bet the farm on which way it's going, you'd bet no verdict. You'd bet hung jury. No verdict. Hung jury is, is my bet on this one. So let's let's get into the case now. Kyle Rittenhouse, again, uh, in the midst of those riots, shooting three people, he's claiming self-defense. Let's listen to a little bit of the prosecutor from his opening statement. The evidence in this case will show that on the night of August 25th, 2020, here in our community of Kenosha, the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17 years old at the time, had armed himself with an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle loaded with 30 rounds in the magazine. And using that rifle, he shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, an unarmed man. The shot that killed Mr. Rosenbaum was a shot to the back. This occurred after the defendant chased down Mr. Rosenbaum and confronted him while wielding that AR-15. Okay. Now, this is a case with video, and what was just described by that prosecutor, if, if you are making a, a, a visual um, picture in your mind of what he just described, I see Joseph Rosenbaum running away from Kyle Rittenhouse as Kyle Rittenhouse is running after him and then lifting up the AR-15 and shooting him dead in the back as he runs away. And that's not even close to what the video shows. That, that's why I, I did not understand um, that description by the prosecutor knowing what the video shows, Ted. Yeah, and that's the problem. If either one of the sides, or if Kyle Rittenhouse himself gets on this, if he takes the stand, if, if you're telling people what you see is not what you see, that's when you run into trouble. And I think he did it in the open. You're right. That's, that, that's not what happened. Rosenbaum did chase down Kyle Rittenhouse. It's clear. Um, and for him to say the opposite, I think could turn a 
uh, uh, jurors off. Yeah, and and the way these opening statements went, the prosecutor just spoke to the jury, and he's very good at it, right? He told a story, and I was listening to him. I'm like, okay, he's telling a story. It's 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 powerful. He knows how to use language, etc. But then the defense got up there and actually showed the pictures and the images from that night, and 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 the what I took away from that contrast, Ted, was that. It seemed like with the prosecutor going first and telling a story, the defense came up there and it was kind of like, okay, that's a nice story. Now let me show you what really happened. And I feel like that's the way it played out inside the courtroom um, on, on that first day. And that's not a good first step for prosecutors. Yeah, it was like the old Paul Harvey and now the rest of the story. Yeah, that's what the, I thought too. And and it was argued before openings, right before openings, to allow the defense to use that video and those still images. The prosecution did not want Schrader to allow them to do it. Judge Schrader said you can. And what happened was a clear disparity in terms of um, following what the uh, you know each attorney was saying. The defense had a huge advantage because you could follow along with the pictures and the video. And I'm sure during the course of the trial, the prosecutor will bring in some pictures and, and show things that uh, he believes proves his version of what happened that night. But the first impression this jury was given as to the video and the and the pictures from that night clearly was the defense version of what happened. Now, one thing that he did say there, and he said these words a, a lot throughout, and I think it's a big part of his theme and what he wants to do here. He keeps saying AR-15, AR-15, very um, specifically referring to it many, many, many times talking about the gun. As And I think the point he's trying to make is that an AR-15 is also on trial here, Ted. I feel like that is what this prosecutor's doing. You're from Wisconsin. You're from Kenosha. How does that play with um, jurors out there? Because I don't know what their thoughts are on guns. I know if you if you did that in, in the county I practiced in, in New Jersey, it might be very effective. How about in Kenosha? I think it is effective. There's a lot of hunting in Wisconsin and guns are a big part of life. But the AR-15 is a different level of gun ownership and they're exploiting that to jurors that are intimidated by that type of weapon in and give them some angst it's a strategy and i think it's a good strategy for the state on the other hand like we talked about earlier those jurors that i have already spotted in the courtroom that would be on the right side of the jury box um they're gonna get annoyed by it they're gonna say uh Oh, I know what you're doing, buddy. And it, it's just a fascinating case. And that's a perfect example of <laughs> just a gun, <laughs> the name of a gun. It, it, it in creates emotion within people. Right. And, and, and the bottom line and what I would say, I don't know if the defense is even going to address it at any point, but like, does it really matter what kind of gun it is? If it's a deadly gun, it's a deadly gun. I mean, you look at the gun that Alec Baldwin had on the set of that um movie and and the bullet went through the victim into a second victim so it's not so much the size of the gun or this you know there's a lot of things that go into play but i absolutely understand what the prosecutor is doing here and that's sort of um i think you're spot on there you know the the, the people who lean that way and see the world that way and perhaps are wearing the masks inside that jury box um um will be very much impacted by that now I thought the most effective thing that the prosecutor did in his opening statement um, was really draw out a contrast. And I, and I thought this was brilliant. I think this is was very well thought out and is a good theme 
for prosecutors in the case. Let's take a listen. But out of the hundreds of people that came to Kenosha during that week, the hundreds of people that were out on the streets that week, the evidence will show that the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. The evidence will show that hundreds of people were out on the street experiencing chaos and violence, and the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. To me, that's important. And by the way, he's using that word chaos, chaos in Kenosha, an incredible documentary on on Court TV that lays out everything that happened that night in the lead up to this trial. Ted Rowland's uh, in charge of all of that because that's part of this trial, right? Everyone who's in this jury was was, I'm sure, glued to the television sets, glued to the Internet, watching and maybe even watching outside their own doors what was happening in Kenosha. And it was absolutely chaos. But then to draw that contrast and say, Despite all that hatred and and the two sides going at it and burning buildings and everything else happening, there's only one person who killed anyone. Yeah, and it was the reoccurring theme. No one else. Yes, they were emotional. Then they said some bad things. They did some bad. No one else fired their weapon and and killed somebody. There were some gunshots. And I also like the way he um, touches the... Um, them and us scenario with outsiders coming to our city and creating havoc and chaos because we saw that in the George Floyd case too um, where the emotions of what people collectively went through all of these jurors in Kenosha went through this they went through watching their city burn for three days just like we saw in Minneapolis those Minneapolis Hennepin County jurors they had a collective experience that they all have in common and for the prosecutor here in in kenosha to say you know we all know they were outsiders and guess where kyle's from illinois yes Uh, and the defense tried to address that i think they know that's a problem um he's from antioch that's relatively close to kenosha is my understanding you know the roads a lot better than i do Uh, but he also pointed out that uh, Kyle's father lives in Kenosha and that Kyle worked in Kenosha. Yeah, which was you know, they needed to do that. And I you know, I do think it repaired it to some extent. But the outsider influence, um, he still is an outsider. He's not like he was living down the street. He had to drive across the border and it, it's relatively close, but it's still a hike. You have to say, I want to go join the fight. I don't live there, but I'm I want to get involved. And let's face it. That's what Kyle did. I like how you said cross the border. <laughs> you know that border you gotta sneak across that border from illinois into wisconsin those cheeseheads they don't want those people in there right um, all right so this theme by prosecutors was also addressed by the defense in his opening statement let's take a listen to how they did it what this case will come down to it isn't a who done it when did it happen or anything like that it is, was Kyle Rittenhouse's actions privileged under the law of self-defense? That is, that the defendant believed that there was an actual or imminent unlawful interference with his person. The defendant believed that the amount of force which he used or threatened to use was necessary to prevent or terminate the interference and that his belief was reasonable. You as jurors will end up looking at 
it from the standpoint of a 17-year-old under the circumstances as they existed on August 25th of 2020. And Mr. Binger makes a big thing out of Kyle Rittenhouse was the only person who shot somebody that evening. True. Mr. Rittenhouse was the only person who was chased by Joseph Rosenbaum that evening. And that really gets us, I think, to the the crux of, of the defense here is going after Joseph Rosenbaum. He's the first one shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, the second two shootings we can talk about in a second. Those are much clearer what happens. It's very clear on video. The, the shooting of Rosenbaum uh, there's video, but it's very far away. It's not necessarily as clear, but I think you're going to see um, the defense, and they did it in their opening statement, is, is, is paint a picture of who Rosenbaum was and what he was up to that night. Yeah, it's a, they, and it's a great move because they have to assassinate his character um, in order for you to, as a, a, an arbiter of this, a, a juror, to say, I can't see much on this grainy video. But if I know that Joseph Rosenbaum was just released from a mental hospital um, hours before and had just come up um, from Arizona and has had a bunch of issues and was acting erratically, according to witnesses and according to the video. Now, who am I going to believe was the aggressor? Was it Joseph Rosenbaum or was it the 17 year old? Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. I, I think they're playing it brilliantly from a defense standpoint. And it's the facts are hard to get around for the state of Wisconsin in this one. When it comes to Joseph Rosenbaum, the reasons he was there and his um, his behavior before he was shot and killed. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. Um, I'm a former prosecutor. You're not supposed to get around facts. I mean, here's, I mean, that's the defense's job. That's what defense attorneys do all the time. They try to try to do the end around around the facts of the case. And prosecutors are supposed to lay out all the facts and let the let the jury decide. That's our ethical obligation. The ethical obligation of a criminal defense attorney is is what's in the best interest of his client. And some a lot of times that's getting around the facts. Um, interesting. So I wanted to listen to a little bit more about um Joseph Rosenbaum and what the defense is alleging here uh, he was doing that night. If there was trouble that night, Joseph Rosenbaum was there. And that's ultimately who visited himself upon Kyle Rittenhouse. The evidence will show he thought probably that he could get that gun from Kyle Rittenhouse. He was wrong. Kyle Rittenhouse protected himself, protected his firearm so it couldn't be taken, used against him or other people from Mr. Rosenbaum who'd made threats to kill. And the other individuals who didn't see that shooting attacked him in the street like an animal. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what the evidence will show. Thank you. And what's interesting is the jury won't hear everything about Joseph Rosenbaum because he's a, the the alleged victim in the case. And the rules of evidence don't don't permit it. But when you break down who Rosenbaum is and the life that he had had up until that point, I mean, he's a convicted sex offender. He has a restraining order where he's not supposed to visit his girlfriend, but he goes to her house and then doesn't stay there. He leaves walking around with his hospital bag because he just got out of 
um, the hospital for some mental issues. There's a lot going on with Rosenbaum. The video of him that night, he's the one blurting out the N-word. Um, he's confronting people, screaming at them. He's the one talking about ripping people's hearts out. I don't know how much the jury's going to learn about him, um, but when you just look at who Rosenbaum is, and it's not anyone deserves to die, what you're trying to figure out is who's the aggressor in a case where self-defense is alleged. Yeah, and, and already with the first or third witness um, and, and with the first witness, the defense has done a great job in cross-examination of getting Rosenbaum's name out there. And um, Corey Washington, who was one of the independent journalists that was live streaming all of this, said, yeah, when there was trouble, that dude was there, the bald guy. And, um, it, 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 and he even said, I noticed his erratic behavior. It's a methodical process. The defense is making Joseph Rosenbaum um, they're, they're creating, um, with what they can, they're, they're trying to give as much information to this jury about Rosenbaum and, and what he brought to the table during this chaotic scene. And the one thing that you said off the top of this segment, Ted, which I think is significant again, um, and this is where the two sides don't agree. You have the prosecutor saying that Rittenhouse is chasing Rosenbaum. You have the defense saying Rosenbaum is chasing Rittenhouse. And it looks like the video, uh, clearly is in sync with what the defense is saying here. Absolutely. And, and when it comes to Rosenbaum's attitude, it, you watch the video and you know, he, he's the guy that stands out as being the one that is unhinged. Um, and I think jurors are going to get that and they're going to get now. And I think this is where I think this 17 years old helps Kyle Rittenhouse. You can't help to think you look over at him at the defense table. He's 18 now, but he still looks like a, you know, 16 year old. And, um, him running around the streets of Kenosha with Joseph Rosenbaum chasing him is scary. And that's a, a huge advantage for it now. So I think when you could just compare the two, who are you going to, what are you going to expect Kyle to do now? The big question that state wants you to focus is on what were you doing there anyway, kid? You should never have been there. And I think everybody agrees with that. Right. And that's the, the argument that I get every night from the attorneys on my show. That's where they start, begin and end. They don't get into they don't want to get into the details of the videos. They want to focus on that big picture. Uh, and that will be the key for the defense needs to get them into the details. Uh, prosecution needs to keep them into why is a 17 year old walking around with an AR-15 and then just convict him because he's a 17 year old with an AR-15. Ted Rowland staying with us. When we come back, I said two big trials at once. The other one taking place in southeast Georgia. It's the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Three men on trial for that. We will talk about how that is going. A much different pace in the south than out in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, they picked the jury in one day and they started the next day. Uh, this one, we're, we're just getting underway after uh, two and a half weeks of jury selection. We'll talk about the Ahmaud Arbery case next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
That's the scene outside the courthouse in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, during jury selection. That's just during the jury selection for the three men accused of murdering Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery um, was running through a neighborhood in, in southeast Georgia. It's Glynn County. Brunswick is the town. Satilla Shores is the uh, little neighborhood where he was running through. Ahmad Arbery is black. He's young. He's running through the neighborhood. He's chased by two middle-aged men and one middle-aged man's son. Um, they're three men in two pickups with two guns and a cell phone recording everything. Um, many of you have seen the video already. Now we're at the murder trial and jury selection taking uh, a while. Uh, much different process than they did out in Wisconsin. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, is still with me. Ted, um, you've been to that neighborhood. You've been to Glynn County. You have walked the streets. You were in the spot where Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed. Um, your thoughts about what is happening down there in this very small community, small town, small courthouse. You've got a, a growing scene that is going to get bigger during the trial, uh, people will be coming in on buses uh, to voice their uh, opinions and, and and voice their concerns about what's happening inside uh, that courthouse. Well, I, I think it's um, the this is a small town. It's a, it's a the it just is you know Glynn County is a small county. They put out the jury summons, and I think it came out that. Um, you know, and it was obvious the first day of question, they said, raise your hands if you recognize anybody here. And, oh, there's Jim, there's, but the people knew each other. And because of that, the outside noise, if you will, the outside opinion is one-sided. No one is standing out there saying, give the Mac Michaels a fair trial. And there is pressure. We've seen it before in high-profile trials. There's pressure on jurors to come back with the right decision. And that is a factor, like it or not, and and it just is. I don't know that at the end of the day, that decision would be any different, but it's something that I, I know is going to be <laughs> number one on an appeal if there's a guilty conviction, because it's such a small town, such a small county, and it should have been moved. But the defense thought, oh, no, these are our people. They're going to they're the best jurors ever because they're just like us. And I think it's backfired. Remember when Kevin Goff said, I'll take the first 12. We'll just take the first 12. Well, right now, Kevin Goff is clogging this jury selection process up with uh, motion after motion because he realizes, uh-oh, he's not getting the 12 bubbas he wanted. Yeah. Now, the other part of it, though, let's talk about this concept of outsiders. We were talking about that concept being used by prosecutors out in Kenosha, Wisconsin, kind of painting the picture that outsiders came in and disrupted our beautiful community, and the defendant is one of those outsiders. Well, in this case, the outsiders are all the protesters who are outside of the courthouse. They're not from Glynn County. They're being bussed in from around the country. Um, is there any way that that could potentially backfire uh, for the prosecution in that case, in that these jurors will be in there saying, wait a minute, I'm not going to get pressured by a bunch of outsiders to tell me what to do in Glynn County. I totally think that that if you'd asked me that question two weeks ago, I'd say, oh, yeah, you got to be careful because that is a place where they don't like outsiders um, and especially coming in from the big cities. However, just the way this process is going 
it seems as though this jury panel um, isn't what the defense want. The, 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 and I may be reading too much into it, but it seems like the defense is getting worried about the collectively of the jurors that came in. And I will say this, that pressure to come back with the right verdict in terms of public opinion does make a difference. And I, I, I don't know, I think, I think it backfired to keep it in Glen County for the defense. So let's take a listen because you're, 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 you've referenced the um, argument about the Bubba's, and we've called this Kevin Goff's Bubba motion, where he's made a motion to um, make sure that there are more Bubba's uh, or Joe Six Packs on the jury. Let's take a listen. In this case, it would appear that white males born in the South over four years of age without a four year college degree. Uh, sometimes euphemistically known as Bubba or Joe Sixpack, seem to be significantly underrepresented. I can't say underrepresented in the entire panel of jurors because the race information on the master list is obviously not inaccurate. Also, that list is missing crucial information to identifying this group. So there are two issues. The one issue is whether that is a cognizable class. If it's not a cognizable class, then that's really the end of the discussion. If it is a cognizable class, then figuring out what the appropriate evidence would be and what the standard would be is much less settled. As I understand it, to be a cognizable group for constitutional purposes, there must be some quality or attribute in existence which defines or limits the membership of that group. Second, there must be a cohesiveness of attitudes, ideas, or experiences which serve to distinguish the purported group from the general social milieu. Third, community of interest present in the group may not be represented by other segments of the population. With all due respect, and without meaning to be stereotypical in any way, I do think there's a real question in this case, whether that demographic is underrepresented in this jury pool. And if it is, then we have a problem with it. <laughs> the Bubba motion. So, uh, you know, I don't think anyone believes he's going to have any success. It's not that type of protected class. And, and maybe it's an issue down the road that he may make on an appeal if and when uh, his client is convicted. Uh, but it's interesting to me um, hearing lawyers say this stuff out loud, you know, because I've, I, I understand the one thing that is not supposed to be a consideration when it comes to excluding jurors or picking a jury is race. It's just not. You're not allowed to eliminate a juror based on the color of their skin, uh, religion, and different states. They add things like gender, et cetera. But, and, and lawyers, when you get them aside and they're kind of off the record, um, you know, and where no one's listening, especially judges, they will talk about all this stuff. It's issue number one in every case, whether or not race is an issue in the trial or not. It's issue number one in jury selection and is by far the biggest issue. And yes, those jury consultants who get very highly paid will say, no, that's too simplistic. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not. It's not. It's 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 the issue that they do. But here, a motion actually saying out loud, we don't have enough Bubba's, Judge. That's one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. Um, what do you say? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. He's saying there, there are no white, there aren't enough older white guys that grew up here. What are you saying? They're not enough old racists that we need. We need a few of them if we're going to win this thing. Um, 
it's crazy that you know, and then he's like, I don't know if they're a protected class. Um, I don't, I, it may, it maybe they're not. Yeah, of course they're not. Um, it, it's insane. Like to your point, what, why even bring it up? This one is just going to get, and it was ridiculed. Um, but it goes to my earlier point. I don't think they're happy with what they've been, um, left with after this, after two, two and a half weeks of jury selection. Yeah, I think that's the that's the takeaway from all of that. And the whole th- this process of jury selection in this case is so different than in the Rittenhouse case. The Rittenhouse case, they chose a jury in one day. And and I've been using this analogy and I don't know if it translates to the rest of the country, but it certainly translates to me and my family. Uh, jury selection is like pasta fajol. I don't know if you've ever had, had pasta fajol, Ted, but if you go to New Jersey, um, you go to any deli or you go over to any Italian uh, uh, Italian's house, they all make pasta fajol. But you you go to six houses, you'll get six completely different things. They will look different. They will smell different. They'll have different ingredients. All of it's going to taste great. And, and, at some, and at some level, it's pasta and beans, right? But it's, it's done so differently. And that's the way jury selection is. At the end of the day, we get 12 in the box and they're, and they're fair and impartial, but every judge goes about it so differently, Ted. And, and these two judges couldn't, couldn't have gone about it in, in a more drastically different manner in two cases that are uh, somewhat similar, although the Rittenhouse case doesn't necessarily have the racial uh, uh, themes that they have in Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> Judge Schrader literally did what Kevin Goff wanted or claimed he wanted. He took the first 20 and uh, he, I mean, <laughs> they were able to qualify 20 people um, within a matter of hours. It was just a, Hey, raise your hand. If you're uh, too biased, all right, you can go rest you. Let's do it. And that, you know, at some level, I think that he got it because as I mentioned earlier, um, looking at that panel, you've got a diverse panel of jurors in Rittenhouse. And at the end of the day, at, uh, in, in the Aubrey case, you might've been able to do the same thing and, and came up with basically the, the, the same um, result. Who knows? But uh, you know what? Everyone there is, is taking it seriously. And it is absolutely correct that appellate courts do look at jury issues more than anything else. So getting it right the first time uh, for the state and for Judge Wamsley, you, you can't argue that. So in this case, uh, there is the videotape. You have broken down that videotape frame by frame. I've looked at your breakdown. I've, I've studied it. And to me, there's two ways to look at what's happening there. And one way is to focus on the entire chase of Ahmad Arbery throughout the neighborhood. And apparently there's more video that we haven't seen, uh, additional video that shows more of that chase through the neighborhood, a chase that ends with a gun with three gunshots and the death of Ahmad Arbery. Then there's another way to look at it. It's just to look at the moment of confrontation. And I think depending upon how you look at that video will determine whether or not you think the self-defense is even plausible or a reasonable explanation uh, for why that gun was fired. I think if you, if you look at the video in the end of it, and this is what the defense wants you to do, and, and it's valid, um, there, you can't look at the video and say, yes, Travis um, shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery because he wanted to kill him. That's what they wanted to do. They chased him to kill him. That's not right. And that's, that, that is not what happened. What happened was they created a very dangerous situation by 
chasing him around the neighborhood and someone died, guess what? Whose fault is that? And that that's the crux of the prosecution, I would assume, argument. And the defense is going to have to say, you as jurors have to laser focus your attention on those final moments because the reason they were chasing him around is because they were going to enact a citizen's arrest. And in Georgia, that's legal. So they need jurors to follow that, that sort of follow the law, I guess, if you want to put it that way. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah. And, and you broke it down perfectly. There's really there are two parts to the defense here. Right. There's the the chase. They have to justify this chase of Ahmad Arbery and they're going to use Georgia's now off the books because of this case, uh, citizens arrest law and try to argue to the jury that it was a valid attempt at a citizen's arrest. And then once they do that, they are able to legitimize the chase. And then once you legitimize the chase, then you can focus in on that confrontation. And at the moment of confrontation, Ahmad Arbery, while he's running around the truck, runs across the front of the truck towards Travis McMichael. And that's where they're going to argue that he went for the gun, much like uh, the arguments in Kenosha will be that the three shooting victims there went for the gun, even though um, they end up getting shot. They're the ones who are the aggressors. And it's a case of self-defense. Now, for prosecutors in Georgia, Ted, um, and I learned this a while ago because I've I've covered a lot of cases in Georgia because I was covering the news in Georgia for a while. The prosecutor's best friend is felony murder. They use it more effectively than any other state, any other DA's office uh, throughout the state of Georgia, um, felony murder. So if they can get this chase to be, uh, you know, the the unlawful uh, imprisonment or the unlawful chase of Ahmad Arbery, and that's the underlying felony, and then he dies during the course of this unlawful felony, then you've got felony murder, which is life without parole. Yeah, and I, I would argue that this is a perfect case of felony murder in that you created a very dangerous situation by your actions and someone ended up dead. That's that's what felony murder is all about, is you committed a felony. The, the, the hard part for the state is going to be proving that, getting jurors to focus in on the nuances of that citizen's arrest law, which basically says you have to have witnessed what you believe a felony in um, progress before you go chasing off after somebody. And they didn't witness that. They witnessed a, a black guy running by their house. And um, that's where I think the defense case crumbles, but we'll have to wait and see because it's going to be argued and like with three attorneys on the defense side and a fantastic team on the prosecution side, this is going to be one to remember in the courtroom. Absolutely. And when it comes to the citizen's arrest law in Georgia, what the defense is trying to do is stretch out the time period that you can know about or witness uh, uh, what you believe in good faith to be a crime, it doesn't have to be immediately before the citizen's arrest. And I think what they're going to argue is there's videos of Ahmad Arbery walking through the construct the house that was under construction in the neighborhood, I think it was three or four times. And then they recognized him from the video as he's running through the neighborhood and try to use that as the probable cause. And that was actually in the statute that the, the statute gave citizens like the same exact standard and power that an officer would have. If you have probable cause to believe, uh, you know, that this person is, uh, you know, has committed some offense and you can uh, lawfully detain them. And it was it was not a good law because it it it. it 
it could create absolute chaos, as we saw under these circumstances, if in fact that was what they were really trying to do, or if they're just using the citizen's arrest law after the fact here, Ted, which is more of what I believe the situation was. It wasn't like they were saying, hey, there's a citizen's arrest law in Georgia. Let's effectuate that because I believe I have probable cause. Travis, go grab your gun. Let's jump in the pickup and make that stop and detain this this suspect for authorities. Yeah. Um, and they, they're using it to their advantage. I do think that Greg McMichael's law enforcement background as an investigator with Glynn County is going to be important here because the mindset is I'm a protector of my neighborhood and, and I know how to do it. I've been doing it for my my whole career. So what I'm doing actually is not unsafe. It's not like one of you jurors with no law enforcement you know, experience telling your boy to grab his shotgun. I'm different. I don't know how you articulate that in a positive way, but it, I think you could thread the needle and maybe that helps them a little bit. But to your point, to argue that Oh, yes, we're, we've studied the uh, legal code of Georgia. Uh, we sit around the dinner table and boom, we saw one. No, that's not going to fly. And the prosecution, I think, is going to come out and say, yes, this was on the books because we forgot to get it off the books because no one would ever in a million years do this. It's ridiculous. Forget it. All right. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. He's in Kenosha. You can watch him every morning as we cover both of these high-profile cases. Ted, thanks so much. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back, as Ted mentioned, there are videos of both cases. My analysis of the videos and which video is better for the prosecution and which video is better for the defense. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. There are videos of all the shootings in both trials. The three shootings by Kyle Rittenhouse and the shooting by Travis McMichael of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. So with these videotapes, they become clearly the most important evidence. Now, in Kenosha, there are many more videos because there are many more people on the streets. There's a lot of different angles. There's even um, a thermal imaging video from an airplane being flown by the FBI over the riots in Kenosha, and they're able to identify who all the different people are. They look like little dots running through the streets, but they've been able to identify all these people. So there is clearly videos of everything that is happening. Some of it's a little shaky. Some of it's a little blurry. Some of it is far away. Some of it's close up. But here's my analysis. I believe that in the case in Georgia, the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery, this video clearly favors prosecutors clearly favors prosecutors, despite the fact that the video was not made public until someone from the defense believed that the release of the video would make the world say, oh, okay, there's no reason to charge these guys, when it in fact became the impetus to charge these guys. Um, I've watched the video many times. Uh, 
And as Ted and I were talking about, the, the confrontation, it, 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 to me, it's clear from the shadows that I studied uh, that you can see when, when Ahmaud Arbery and Travis McMichael are obscured by the truck, you can see their shadows underneath. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery is going towards uh, Travis McMichael at the um, moment just before the gun is fired. To me, that's clear. But despite that, which the defense certainly will focus on, the overall video clearly helps prosecutors because it paints a complete picture of what the heck was going on in Satilla Shores that day. Okay. Number one, he is trying to run away. Okay. This confrontation between these three men and Ahmaud Arbery is initiated by the three men. There is no doubt in anyone's mind. He's trying to run away. So to, to, to try to claim some level of Ahmaud Arbery's trying to commit some crime or attack someone um, really, to me, runs contra con contrary to the entire incident, which is caught on video. And he's running away. He's trying. He's changing directions. He's turning around. He's trying to avoid these guys until the final moment when there's a man on the ground with a shotgun. And, and, and to me, what prosecutors have to try to translate to this jury is you can look at this case and we're going to hear the case, what the defendants are thinking and what's going through their mind in this situation. But you also have to think about what's going through the mind of Ahmaud Arbery in this situation. He's running through a neighborhood and there's three men that he does not know in two pickup trucks chasing him through the neighborhood. One of them is on the back of the pickup truck. This, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Who would not be scared to death and think that your life is in jeopardy? To me, the, the, the self-defense argument would be for Ahmaud Arbery in that circumstance. So their video, clearly, from my perspective, advantage prosecutors. Now, let's take a look at all the videos out in Wisconsin. And to me, it's a different picture. It's, it's a way different picture. Because in every instance of Kyle Rittenhouse firing his weapon, the person he is firing the weapon at is going towards him, it, the, 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 is the aggressor. In the situation, Joseph Rosenbaum, you see him on the on the heat thermal video running at, absolutely running at Kyle Rittenhouse. Anthony Uber, who's probably a, was probably a great kid, got caught up in all this, but the, the video is clear. He's smacking Kyle Rittenhouse in the head while Rittenhouse is on the ground with his skateboard with one hand while grabbing and trying to take his gun with the other hand. The only reason Rittenhouse was able to keep the gun was because it was strapped around him. If he didn't have the strap, Anthony Huber would have gotten the gun. So he's the aggressor. Gage Grosskreutz, who gets shot, survives, is, is shown on video grabbing the gun with one hand as he's pointing his own gun at Kyle Rittenhouse with the other hand when he gets shot. So... That video, and, and ultimately the, the jury may see it another way or it may not be enough for, for self-defense, but this video is much better evidence for the defense because you've got actual video and, and photographic evidence that the three people who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse all 
initiated the physical confrontation and were the aggressors. And what the video also shows are other people in the exact area, very close to Kyle Rittenhouse, who he doesn't shoot. He doesn't fire his weapon. There's one instance where there's someone approaching him. He raises his weapon. The person stops. That person doesn't get shot. So that evidence, I believe, is is much better for the defense than the prosecution. Because to follow the, the way people have described Kyle Rittenhouse, that he's running through the streets just shooting at, at protesters, well, as the defense, you can argue based upon the video evidence that the only people he shot were people who initiated a physical confrontation with him. He wasn't randomly shooting people. As a matter of fact, the video of Gage Grosskreutz, there's another video that he himself shoots prior to getting shot. He's videotaping and and recording Kyle Rittenhouse and has a conversation with him. And Rittenhouse doesn't shoot him, doesn't point the weapon at him, as a matter of fact, tells him he's going to the police. So you, you watch and listen to the videos in the Wisconsin case. The defense is going to rely upon them, I believe, much more effectively uh, than the prosecution can in that case. And that was probably evident from the opening statements where the defense uh, relied upon them almost uh, entirely and exclusively in making their opening statement. And the inverse is true down in Georgia. While the defense will make their arguments that the video shows self-defense, you take a look at that video and all the other videos, uh, to me it's very clear who the aggressors are. And, it's, and, and I believe the prosecutors will have a much easier time uh, using that video evidence in front of this jury to convince them of their argument. Now, that's just one piece of evidence. There is more evidence. There will be testimony. There will be cross-examination. This is not me predicting a verdict in either case. As a matter of fact, in the Rittenhouse case, I don't know if they get to a verdict. It's the first time I've ever covered a trial where I think at the end of the day, we may end up with a hung jury, and that might be the most likely scenario. I never know what 12 people are going to do. I'm just telling you um, my analysis of the video evidence and who gets the advantage inside the courtroom. Now, folks, I want to tell you about another great video, uh, Chaos in Kenosha. Uh, Ted Rollins and, and, and the documentary unit put together an incredible, incredible documentary. Check the show notes for a link so you can watch it. And it really tells the story, breaks down a lot of the video evidence, interviews. You'll understand the case. You'll understand what happened that night. Uh, and, and it really makes gives you a much better perspective in watching the testimony in the trial, which you can watch on Court TV your front row seat to justice day in and day out. Um, if, you don't, if, you, if you don't know where we are, uh, you can go on our website and, and, and look at the, uh, the tab, you know, how to watch, where to watch Court TV or where to find us. But you can also uh, find us with a digital antenna. If you have a digital antenna, rescan it, find Court TV, lock it in. Two incredible, incredible trials going on right now, important cases as well. Um, That's it. I got to get back to work, folks. I got trials to watch. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.